0: How are you guys doing? Thanks, Mike. Uh, My name is Brandon Cherry. Uh, My wife, Destiny Cherry, is over here. And we lead the singles ministry. Edge. Because we got edge. Amen. That's all I got. Um, So we've been in the book of John. If you're joining us for the first time today as a church, We're actually going through the book of John. And right now we're in John chapter 7, 1 through 13. And so we're at a turning point in John. There's a growing tension regarding the character of Jesus. So if you read the first five books in John's gospel, he's well received, he's liked, and he's welcome. When you start feeding people, people like you. (laughs) But when he starts making claims about himself, and starts telling truth, it's different. His identity, his purpose is brought to life. He starts making claims about himself and reveals truths of his origin and that of God's nature. He went from the people's champ to, whoa, you're talking about eating your flesh? I'm leaving. (laughs) You see, in the previous chapter, people start leaving Jesus, even his own disciples, and they're like, this is a hard teaching. I don't know if I can follow this guy. And you know, right now, from this point forward in John, you're going to have two responses to Jesus. It's either you move toward him, you recognize and you profess who he is, or you move away from him. You're going to reject him. You misunderstand him and his claims. So right now, we're going to go to John 7, 1 through 13, and the title... The big idea is failure to connect. So John 7, 1 through 13, let's read. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because of the Jews. They were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near... I'm sorry, but when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going to this feast, because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Among the crowds, there were widespread widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Let's pray to God. Father in heaven, uh, God, we're so grateful to be uh, the audience to hear the book of John. We're so grateful, God, to hear Uh, what you have via your Holy Spirit to deliver to our hearts. God, I pray that as we read this passage, we don't read it from then and there, but we read it here now. Lord, I know that we read the hearts and the failure to connect, but even in today, you look at society, there still is a failure to connect. I pray, God, that even in this room, those who are disciples, those who are Christians, continue to connect to you, and those aren't are willing to establish that connection. Father, we're so grateful for who you are and what you've done. It's in your son's Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, i got to give you guys a little backdrop to what's going on. If you read John 6 through John 7, there's actually two festivals going on. You have the Passover, and you have the Feast of the Tabernacles. So, there's an important thing about these two Jewish feasts. The conclusion of the Passover feast is wrapping up but the Feast of Tabernacles is just starting. The irony is that here you have Jews in Israel celebrating what God has done for them. Grateful, connecting. There's a lot of people who are trying to draw close to God. The irony is that they failed to connect that God was literally right in front of them in the flesh. So the Passover, it's an annual feast that all Jewish men were required to attend. They are required to celebrate. In Exodus 12, 11 through 23, the word itself is rooted in this idea that God would pass over judgment over the house of Israel, but he would judge the Egyptians. The Jews were to remember how God spared their firstborn, how God spared their firstborn and delivered them from bondage. God's wrath was passed over them. The meal itself in verse 17 of Exodus 12 is the unleavened bread and the Passover lamb, that's the Passover meal. In the book of John, as Jesus feeds the 5,000 and makes this claim about him being the bread of life, ironically, that was the time of the unleavened bread. And when they were full and fed, they were content. But then when the claims came about who he was, his origin and his nature, they were like, wait a minute. Moses gave us, told us about man in the desert. Now you're saying your bread? How do we, what, this, I'm, I'm, I'm not connecting here. They're not connecting. And so you see this tension starting to build. What was exposed was full stomachs, but empty hearts. The point he was trying to make is that God alone is going to feed you and fulfill you. Not bread. Bread's temporary. Then you have the Feast of Tabernacles. If you go to Deuteronomy 16 in Leviticus, tabernacle comes from the Jewish word booth. The Hebraic word is su- sukkot. And it's also translated into tabernacles. So it celebrates the completion of the harvest. You're going to go and you're going to harvest and complete. It commemorates God's goodness to his people during their period of wandering in the desert for 40 years. And during this time in the desert, they lived in tents waiting in expectation to enter the promised land. So during the feast, during Jesus' time, you would go and set up temporary booths or tents, shelters. Fun fact, to this day, Orthodox Jews construct small booths to remind them of the booth they lived in in Egypt when they were in the desert. So tabernacle implies that God's presence is residing among them. And here, Jesus just stood right in front of them and they couldn't connect that. So while you have this feeling of contrition and awe and closeness to God, in contrast, Jesus had a bounty on his head. And while it was a very festive atmosphere and good intentions, you're drawing close to God, you're bringing your family, you're having family devotionals, they still failed to connect to God and God was right in front of them. So this brings me to my first point, Jesus is not of this world. You know, his family had a hard time understanding Jesus. His brothers failed to connect. Actually, this is one of the few instances where you get to see Jesus' siblings and what they were like. From reading the text at face value, you kind of pick up that they're kind of condescending, they're cynical, and, and you kind of get this vibe that You're a public figure. Why don't you go make your public entrance? Totally aloof of what was going on. Jesus, meanwhile, knew that the end was near. His brothers tried to advise him on his public life. You can tell their advice wasn't sincere. It's not clear if his brothers knew a lot about Jesus' ministry or the intimate details of his ministry. But Jesus corrects their misconception of who he is. So he says the right time for me has not yet come. For any time is right. For you, any time is right. One of the things you'll realize is that Jesus does not work in accordance with man's schedule. He doesn't move about on his own schedule. He actually moves about with the will of God. He wasn't refusing to go to the feast. He was refusing to go the way his brothers wanted him to go. As a pilgrim to make a public entrance, hey, look at me, I'm your Messiah. That's not what Jesus was trying to do. He was trying to do it God's way on God's timing. So, if you were to think, you would think that his brothers, his family, would know about Jesus, his intention. Well, you're wrong. You know the reason they couldn't connect with their own brother? Is because they were actually part of the world. Hard telling somebody at family union, you're part of the world. Love you, Dad. <laughs> but his family were worldly, they were speaking from the world's point of view. You know, when Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil, the world is a system set up against God. It's a anti-God state of mind, if you think of it deeper. And so, of course, when you have Jesus' agenda, the agenda of of God, and the world's agenda, it's two separate agendas going in two separate directions. So when you look at Jesus and you look at his life, what do you see? He lives in full submission to his Father. He's waiting on God. Too often, we want God to wait on us. And this is a failure to connect to God on our part. We try to repurpose God for our own purposes. You put conditions and terms on what it means to follow Jesus. There's a clause statement. (laughs) I realize as I get older, one of the things that I like, and this is going to sound weird, is that sometimes following Jesus needs to hurt and feel inconvenient. It reminds me that there has to be a tension there against my will versus the will of God. And it's not natural. It's not natural. And I'm not saying that it's a burden or it's a workspace salvation. No, sometimes I need to feel a little pain. It needs to hurt a little bit. And I don't like pain. I don't like inconvenience. I don't like you touching my schedule. So I did this test at my job Apparently, I am a ESTJ, it's called Briggs-Myers, Myers-Briggs, this guy with two last names, I don't know. <laughs> but apparently, I'm a extrovert, I'm sensing, thinking, and judging, meaning that I'm very rigid in how I think, I'm very logical, and I don't like deviation, or I'm not a hippie in my mind, I, I, like, I like order. <laughs> I love order. And when you're rigid like me and you try to deviate from my plans, I'm not happy. I'm not happy at all. I think ESTJ is the the executive, the CEO. They have a certain regimented schedule. But you know, the interesting thing about that personality of mine is that it goes against one of God's character, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is an agent or entity that sets God's agenda. Turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts Acts chapter 8, verse 26. I'm just going to read a few verses here. I'm reminded of the Holy Spirit every time I, I read this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. On his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kandike, queen of the Ethiopians. This man went to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot, stay near it. So Philip ran, stayed posted, and waited. Then Philip ran to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. And then they have a Bible study. That's crazy. End of this Bible study. Verse 38. He gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized them. When When they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, and he went rejoicing. If you ask me apart from God if that's my plan every day, no. If I'm an important man going somewhere, I have a schedule. There's a reason why I have a schedule, and I have a chariot, and I have all these, I have a schedule. (laughs) Don't mess with my schedule. But you look at Philip, see how his schedule aligned with God's schedule. The fact that disruption changed the trajectory of two men's lives. Two men who may not have talked to each other. A Jewish follower of Jesus was told by the Spirit to go, hey, approach this man. You meet a man from Africa and it's like, study the Bible with him. And the man from Africa is like, look, I'm on my way back. And It's like, well, I need help. Help me study the Bible. You know what's funny is that early church history speculates or claims that that Ethiopian eunuch probably became a bishop in the North African church in the first century. It's all of the Holy Spirit, and it's not him being held hostage to his own agenda. Philip connected, the Ethiopian eunuch connected. I'm reminded and calibrated of who Jesus is, Luke 9, 57 through 62, it's a discipleship passage. It's the cost of following, it's uh, Jesus going about asking people, follow me. And you see in that passage, excuses. I got to go bury my dad. Uh, I got to go say bye. I got to do this. And Jesus knocks every excuse down. It reminds me of me a lot. When I get asked to serve in kids' kingdom, When I get asked last minute to join a Bible study and The Walking Dead is wrapping up, the season finale. Being asked to serve at five loaves. Special contribution during a financial famine. You know, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, and he didn't put restrictions on his life or his willingness to follow God. We follow Christ. Are you putting restrictions on following Jesus? So we talk about his brothers, but what about the crowds? So in verse 11, now you're at the feast of of the tabernacle. The Jews were watching him asking, where is that man? I think he's a good man. Oh, he's deceitful. He He ain't nothing but he's not good. He's deceitful. So you see the crowds even failed to connect to who Jesus was. In Matthew 13, I'm going to read this. This is a very powerful passage. It elicits Isaiah. Matthew 13, 13 through 15, it says. And it's in red, too. You can't miss it. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, I understand with their hearts, and I would turn and heal them. This describes Israel, but I think it also describes us. They miss the cue. They totally miss the cue. They're aiming darts at the wrong target, and they keep missing the mark. The sad truth is, Jesus is describing the spiritual dullness of his people. It's really sad. Then this brings me to another point. Who is Jesus to you? So the answer, believe it or not, it's not he's the Messiah, he's a good teacher, he's this, he's that. Actually, the answer depends on how much you're willing to let him interfere and disrupt your life. That's who Jesus is to you. It's not really a question you can, or answer, you can, uh, a question you can answer out loud. It's actually seen in your life. There's a few people in the Gospels that actually capture this. There are many men who either failed to connect who Jesus was, or they were able to throw the dart and hit the mark. Nicodemus, beginning of this book, calls him teacher, calls him rabbi. Couldn't see that God was sitting in front of him had a hard time deciphering, comprehending God's truths. Jesus like, you're Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these basic truths of God. Two opposing characters, Judas and Peter. Judas, before he sets Jesus up, he says, Rabbi. That's like, well, that's your Lord. No, he calls him Rabbi. Peter... When Jesus asked, who do you say I am? He hits, he hits the nail. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. So they made two separate claims. What does that mean? Well, look at their lives. Look at Judas' life. Look at Peter's life. Compare Judas' fate with Peter's fate. Judas hung himself because he felt guilty about what he did and recognized what he did. Peter died as a martyr and was crucified upside down. They made two separate claims, but they both either connected or connected the dots. And although for Peter, his proclamation was one thing, it actually wasn't until Jesus himself restored him that it really connected the dots for him. Well, the rich young ruler, that's a good example. He calls him, "Good teacher, He reduces Jesus from Messiah to a well-respected teacher, strips him of his divinity and and his origin, puts him in a category where he has no authority and no position, no power. He was set set on behavior modification, came already justified to Jesus, wanted validation from Jesus, but the biggest thing is he wasn't willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. Simon and the Pharisees, there's great examples of how they saw Jesus. In Luke 7, 36 through 50, Simon invites Jesus over for dinner. And it wasn't hospitality. It wasn't to love him. It was actually to kind of break him and see if he's the real deal. Simon thinks in his head, if this man were a prophet, he'd know that this was a prostitute kissing his feet, wiping his hair, wipe, using her hair to wipe his feet. And so even Simon saw Jesus as a pseudo-prophet, not even a full-blown prophet, a pseudo-prophet. And you saw him ridiculing him. Then you have men who hit the mark. Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Zacchaeus was a sellout. He was a tax collector. His own people despised him. They hated him more than Romans. They're like, you work for those people, and you're taken from your people. And Zacchaeus knew he was messed up. And he knew he was so messed up that out of his, he wanted to get right with God. So what did he do? He did something undignified. He climbed a tree to get to Jesus. And Jesus is like, that guy over there, he gets it. He's connecting the dots. He connects. Levi, the tax collector, the Ethiopian eunuch. Saul, who later became Paul, they connect the dots. So in light of these examples, it really boils down to this. Your life is a public proclamation of who Jesus is to you. Your life is an indicator of how well you're connected to God. And if you live in alignment with his will. So what does that look like? Well, in order to understand God's will, I think it's simple. You need to invest in seeking and understanding who God is. One of my favorite passages is in the book of Psalms. Actually, Psalms is one of my favorite books because Psalms actually gives you great quiet times of men who strove and strive to dig deep and understand who God is. It's men who wailed loud prayers to God. It's men who wanted to know God's precepts, His laws. Men who yearned to know God. If you want to know what God's will is, well, you need to study the character of God, right? Jesus described that same dullness, deafness, and blindness to those who are spiritually inept It's because they fail to connect with God every day. You have the Jewish, you have the Torah right there read to you, but no one could connect to God on a personal level. I'll be honest with you, in my life, I have a hard time submitting to God's will, I have a hard time connecting the dots when I'm not consistently in tune with God myself. What about your decision-making process? It shows who you put first. Jesus actually illustrates this in Matthew 6. Matthew six, twenty-five through 34. I won't read the whole thing, but he addresses worrying and how you make decisions and how you make sense of things. In the end, verse 31 of Matthew 6. So don't worry about what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear. For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. It says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That's interesting. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. What would that look like this week if you actually put that into practice? What would that look like this week if you sat down with somebody and asked them, hey, what would it look like for me to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness in my ministry, leading my household, making financial decisions, making decisions about life, family planning? What would that look like if I put God's kingdom first? your finances. When I, before I was a Christian, my mindset was not first fruits. It was uh, first dibs. <laughs> so my first job actually was at 14. I worked under the table for my uncle, did HVAC. And he kept me and my cousins focused. He kept us out of trouble. So we worked for him every summer and we got paid really good. But all that money went to clothing, shoes, and I don't know what it went towards. I probably lost a couple thousand dollars that summer, and I don't know where it went. That was my decision-making process. Oh, I had a PlayStation. So I bought Tekken, (laughs) I bought Final Fantasy, I completed that, that game that summer. I bought a lot of games, so I actually, I do know where the money went to. But the very first thing I did with my check was me first. Does that describe you? Do you look at God first? Are you connected to God with your finances? What about your audience, the impact you have on your audience? 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 12, talks about watching your progress, watch your life and doctrine. How are you doing with that? Does your public integrity reflect your integrity in here? Are you intentional with the people you engage with? And then my favorite, John chapter 10: Service to the saints." The Good Shepherd versus the hired hand." Jesus actually sets the expectation of what service looks like. Even later in John 13, he said, "You know what? I'm going to show you what service looks like. I, Lord, going to wash your feet." That's amazing. Are we good shepherds in our households, husbands? Are we good shepherds in our ministry? Are you good shepherds of what's been entrusted to you, or are you a hired hand? Someone who doesn't take ownership of it, but lets the next man do it. It's duty. I check, punch the clock, deuces. That was me at McDonald's, though. Um, when I was in high school. Not now, not now. <laughs> Your response to correction, discipline, advice. All of these are just examples of where you can show whether you're connected to God. I'm going to go to Luke 9, 57 through 62. Luke nine fifty-seven through 62. It's the cost of following Jesus. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. That actually is a reference to Elisha, where he actually was called by, well, Elisha, was it called by Elijah to follow, to go, become a prophet. And he was like, well, I'm plowing. And he's like, burn it, just go. But this idea of, being connected to Jesus, you see that each person Jesus encounters, they have a hard time connecting who he is. There's excuses. They're very surface they're very shallow. And in every case, you look at all the men he encounters. these are men who had an opportunity to do things to change the world. These are men who could have been Peter, Bishop of Rome, could have been John, exiled to Patmos. Could have been the one sent out to India to evangelize a whole continent. But they shot them all down because they did not connect with God. So as we wrap up, I want to ask you, church, what excuses are you making that prevents you from connecting to God? What would your week look like if you actually shot down those excuses and made the time to connect with God? What impact would you have on this church and this ministry? I'm not talking about just attendance, but I'm talking about active engagement. So as we wrap up this idea of failure to connect, we look at Jesus is not of this world. And we look at this idea of who is Jesus to you? I pray this week as a church that we connect with God individually, but also corporately. Thank you, church.